just the scripture reading. The Lord surrounds his people. Psalms 125. A, so a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, but which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. From this time forth and forevermore, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to righteousness, lest the righteousness stretch out their hand to not do wrong. Do good, O Lord, O Lord to those who are good and those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord would lead away their ever doors, peace upon Israel. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together and this gathering that you blessed us with. Help us to open our eyes to what you want us to learn today and help us to stand upright and follow you and know that you are with us no matter what, just like in our verse today. Lord, help us to open our eyes and our ears to see and hear what we need to today. Please bless our gathering and let us have a good day today. Amen. it's on up here so okay is it, can you hear it oh there it is okay cool um yeah thanks micah and amelia while my voice sounds super loud um yeah thanks for reading guys that was really good thanks for praying um okay yeah so obviously i'm not tim uh i'm not nick and i'm also not jt who was up here last month uh people do get me and jt confused that has happened before because we do kind of look alike. I mean, we're both like the same height and have brown hair, I guess. Um, but it has happened before. But yeah, so uh, I'm not any of those people. Um, uh, so we're doing, if you haven't been here, we're doing a series on the Psalm of Ascents that Mike just read, which is the Psalms 120 through 134. And so there's 15 of those, and we're doing those uh, the first Sunday of each month. And so in, we're kind of using those as a way to get different people up here, just the way that we're doing like the readings and the communion and the catechism of just to get different parts of the body up here and get uh, people more familiar with bringing things and bringing what they have to the body and that that can just be a blessing to, like, to help different parts of the body build up other parts of the body and be able to encourage those gifts and everything. So that's what we've been doing. That's why I am up here uh, today, hopefully. For probably everybody involved, it won't, this won't be something that happens a ton. But um, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Gabe. thanks, Gabe. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, yeah. So uh, one of the I always say that my favorite parts of weddings are the speeches because 
Like, if you go through the ceremony, everything just kind of happens the way that you know it's going to happen. It's like, it's great. But with the speeches, you give somebody a mic, and you have, like, no idea. Like, they can say anything. Like, I've seen some really awkward speeches before in weddings. But, and sometimes they're really good. Like, sometimes they surprise you, and it's actually really good. But either way, it's, like, it's great for everybody else. You know, it's, it's either going to be entertaining or something. So, yeah, that's, I guess that's kind of how I'm looking at this. Like, <laughs> I am hoping it's good, but... <laughs> I'm sure you guys will benefit either way. Um, <laughs> thanks, Gabe. I <laughs> appreciate it again. Um, yeah, so, okay, so anyway, so for those of you guys who don't know me, my name's Ian. Uh, I've been going to Point for about six and a half years now, which is kind of crazy. It feels not that long, but yeah, it's been a while. Um, I just had my 29th birthday, and as Noel Negron, yeah, thank you. Um, as Noel Negron pointed out, now I'm in my, I'm already in my 30th year of life. So yeah, so getting older than I want to be already. Um, and I'm also, so what I do for work is I'm a software developer, and why that's pertinent for you guys is that software developers do not do a lot of talking. That's kind of like. One of the, that, and that was definitely not something that I didn't consider whenever I was looking at jobs. Like, <laughs> that was definitely a perk, is that I don't have to, like, stand up in front of people and talk a lot. That was something that I was looking for. Um, so, yeah, all that to say that uh, this is not something that I'm used to doing. It's not something that I normally do. Um, but I am, I will say, I'm actually really excited to do this. I'm excited to be up here. Uh, I have gone through... What I have a lot of times, and I went through it with Tim, and I am legitimately excited. I do feel like God has put stuff on my heart that I want to share, and I'm hoping that, and just praying that it'll be really helpful. Um, yeah, and I'm also just really humble. Like, I'm really, I know that there are teachers out here, and there are people that are a lot more, have a lot more wisdom than I do, and a lot better at teaching, but I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be able to come up here and just, and to learn, because I mean, that's, that's part of what this is, and and it's cool. I mean, even just the communion and catechism and everything, as we've been doing that, I think it has been really helpful. Like, I've really liked it. I've liked hearing from different people, and I, I think a lot of people have, too, just not hearing from the same people over and over again, but realizing that God is working in a lot of people's lives and that he's doing things and just being able to see that, I think, has been really helpful for a lot of people. So that's that's kind of the point of um, all of this, and yeah, but yeah, I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to share what I have. Uh, the only thing that I'm really worried about is time, honestly. I went through it yesterday. Tim gave me, he said like it should be like four pages, and I think I have eight pages. So that's, yeah, I'm hoping that, I'm kind of trying to be conscious of the clock, but we'll see what happens. I'm, I feel like I've already rambled more than I wanted to. Um, okay, but I am going to pray, just before we actually go into it, I'm going to pray one more time. So, yeah, God, I just am really thankful to be up here and really grateful to be here with your people, and I thank you that you are here, um, and I thank you that you are worth worshiping, and I thank you that you are holy, and I just pray that you would speak to all of us here. I pray that, um, that you would just open us up and that you would open up our hearts, and I know that you, I think you have something for everybody here just in different ways, whether it's through the worship or through the catechism or through the message or whatever, I think that you, I know, th I know that you want to know us and you want us to know you. And so I just pray that this will be a time to do that. Pray that this will be a time that you are glorified. Um, yeah, and just that you would be here. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, cool. So yeah, as Micah read, we're talking about Psalm 125 today. 
And yeah, that's the Psalm of Ascent. So we've, we've kind of gone through this at the beginning of every month, so I won't belabor that point. But basically, the Israelites, would they had these celebrations or these festivals uh, throughout the year. And then and when those happened, they would come from all around Israel or wherever else they were, and they would come up to Jerusalem. And they would sing those as they went up, and that's where they come from. Or that's at least where we think they come from. There's like some other theories, but... Uh, that's kind of the main one, and so one of the so yeah we've we've kind of talked about that before. One of the things I was just reading a little bit about them, and I did think uh, one of them I might have stolen this actually. I don't know. I couldn't remember if somebody has already said this on Sunday before. So if somebody has, then I'm sorry. But I think it, it was, it's cool, and I think it's a good thing to be reminded of. That I was just thinking as uh, the Jews are doing this, and as they're um, going up to Jerusalem. Like, that's something that Jesus and his family would have done. We have a story of Jesus going up to Jerusalem with his family and going to the temple, and then they leave, and he's still there. And so this is something that Jesus would have done. So the same way that we're, we're not, like, memorizing these and seeing them together, but we are looking at them, and we're interpreting them, and we're trying to learn from them. And I, that's something that Jesus, like, as a child would have done, uh, I, I probably, that he probably would have done. And I think that's cool. I mean, it, it's a way that, it's just another way that we can relate to him, that, like, he was a human being. He would have learned this. He would have, to some degree, probably like studied these, or at least had you know the songs stuck in his head, like as they would sing these. So I just I thought that was kind of cool and something that uh, is worth mentioning. Um, yeah. So we already got through one of them. So hopefully it won't take too long. So um, one thing that I do want to say too is that this is very much front loaded. So I have like I'm going to spend a lot of time on the first verse. I'm going to read that and then. Hopefully, as we go through, then I'll kind of use those themes throughout the other ones. But the amount of time that I'm going to spend on the first verse is not the amount of time I'm going to spend on all of them, so don't freak out. Um, and then one other thing that I want to say is that I'm going to be kind of talking about it from an Old Testament perspective and a New Testament perspective. And I know that you guys are probably all used to doing that, but I, I'll be just be using that language a lot. I might use like Old Covenant, New Covenant language, but essentially all that I mean by that is what they, like, as they're singing this and they're thinking about it, what they would have thought back then, like, basically pre-Jesus and post-Jesus. So kind of the way that they look at it, they would have looked at it then, and then the way that we can look at it now, like, with Jesus and knowing knowing the full story, like, having the rest of the Bible and having all of the writings that we do have um, and, and all of the revelation that's been given to us. So just kind of, like, the two different perspectives. I'm going to be kind of jumping back and forth between those. Um, okay, so first verse, I'm just gonna kinda jump right into it. Uh, first verse is, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. So there, I mean, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of different ways that you can look at this, but the first thing that I wanted to point out is that it's those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. So it's not like those who are strong, those who are really talented, those who are skilled, those who are charismatic, uh, but it's those who trust, right? And, and trusting is a really interesting thing. I think the concept of it is really interesting because it doesn't, in some ways it takes a lot. I mean, trusting people is hard, right? But at the same time, anybody can trust. Like that list of things that I just went through, you don't have to be any of those things to trust. Like everybody has the ability to trust, which I think is, it's, I mean, it's really beautiful. It's something, it means that anybody, like basically everybody has the opportunity to trust God. Everybody has the opportunity to follow him. And whenever I think about this, I always, I like, for better or for worse, I always think of Tim's Ratatouille thing, or it's like anyone can be a cook, and it's not that like, or anyone can cook. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, 
And it's not that everybody like cooks well, or it's not that everybody is a Christian, but it's like every, it is open to every single human being. Like there's no prerequisite that we don't have as human beings to trust him. And so it's just, it's open. It's completely open. And I think that's, it's a good thing to solidify things as we're getting started. I think that's a good thing to bring into it. Um, okay, so so we're talking about trust, and it says, what are those people like? It says they're like Mount Zion. So this is one of those things where it's like you can kind of, you read it, and it's you kind of go, oh, cool, like Mount Zion. Like that sounds, <laughs> that sounds biblical. Like <laughs> that seems good. Um, so Mount Zion was, uh, there's, so there's a couple different meanings. This is where I'm going to start switching between the, like the Old Testament and the New Testament kind of language. So going to look at like what they would have thought of that first. So there is some, I mean, even whenever it was used back then, they did have some, it, it had more meaning than the actual place, but there was a place called Mount Zion and it was the city of David. It was a city that, it was like a, a fortified city that David took over from the Jebusites. Uh, so it was an actual place. And so whenever they think about that, right, they're going to think it's going to have this imagery of like a fortified city, of fortifications, of something that is something that cannot be easily taken, something that cannot be easily conquered, right? And that's going to be, that's going to work for them, right? Because that's a real image for them. Like, they lived in a time of war. I mean, we've been reading through the Old Testament. There was a lot of war. And so being in a place, uh, you know, as opposed to being in the surrounding countryside, being in a place where there is actually safety, there's walls, that's a big deal. That's something that is kind of a life or death uh, difference in a lot of situations. So that's a really big thing. I mean, for us, it's like, if you've seen, you know, Lord of the Rings, it's like, that's kind of the closest that we get to or read the books. Um, that, you know, we don't really have fortresses. We don't really, we do, but it's, things are different now. Um, and not, yeah, anyways. It's not something that we like think about a lot, at least in this current location, in this current time. And so for them, it, it would have been a real, comfort, right? It would have been something really practical, and it would have been something that really was like life or death to them, and that's something I wanted to kind of highlight that and like not push that aside, that just to kind of imagine what that would have been like, and so what they're saying is like God really is our protector, like he is something that protects us in a life and death way, like from death essentially, and so, and that's a really big thing, right? And then, but kind of switching to the new covenant side of it now, it also, so Mount Zion has a lot of other meanings. Um, well, essentially it's kind of looked at this, like the heavenly Jerusalem, so like the, the coming kingdom of God. And so like the city of God, right? And so like now we kind of read this and we don't really, I mean, we don't really think of Jerusalem, right? Like probably most of us have never been there. Um, and we don't really think of like an actual city, but we're kind of thinking of this heavenly kingdom, right? We're, we're thinking of, what God is going to bring about, um, that he says he's going to bring about in Revelation and other places. And so we trust that he's like, we can take the imagery, right? Like it, it's poetry and we can kind of take that and say, okay, yeah, so he's talking about a fortress, like he's going to take care of us. But then part of it is this like everlasting eternal thing. And you can see that at the end of the, you know, it says, which cannot be moved, but abide, abides forever. So even even the writer was looking at this in kind of this eternal eternal lens that we can also look at it through. Um, and that's a really big thing, right? I mean, and this is a lot of where I want to spend my time is just this eternal view, because that it is a really big thing. Like whenever he says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Like 
That's a huge statement. And I think especially if you've been in church, it's easy to kind of brush that off because you've, you know, you've heard that before. And like, I've heard that before. And if you haven't been in church, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, sure. Like you say, you know, whatever. You can kind of just say that, but it's like, what does that actually mean, right? And so it's a, it's a really weighty statement that is easy to just brush off the like forever part in the eternity um, lens of it. And so, and, and th- this was something that really struck me and I felt like that God was, I don't know, really teaching me in different ways and something really what I wanted to share with what you guys, so that's a lot of what we're gonna be themed around is this eternity aspect of it and what that means. And in the kind of the picture, I was trying to think of a good analogy and I'm like really gonna out myself as a huge nerd here, but the only thing that I could think of or the best thing that I thought of was like a Rubik's cube. Like, so you know, you've probably seen them like the colors and the square and whatever. And I got really into it for a while and they're, they're super fun, they're really cool. But um, so the thing that I was thinking is like, we kind of look at eternity and you can think about it and say like, okay, yeah, like I'm gonna go to heaven. Like if, if you're a Christian and if you put your faith in Jesus, you kind of say, okay, yeah, I'm gonna go to heaven. Like whenever I die, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be with God forever, right? And there's so much in that. It's like, you're talking about being with God, you're talking about eternity. And I, I mean, a lot of that is stuff that we can't really comprehend. So I kind of want to like, the thing about Rubik's Cubes is that like, if you look at the people that solve them, which you should go look up the world record, it's like crazy. It's really crazy, they're, they're really good. Um, but they don't look at just one side of it, right? They pick it up and they like, they look at all the sides of it. And so what I kind of want to do today is with eternity, if we're holding the Rubik's Cube of eternity, right? Then I want to like, instead of looking at the side that we normally look at of just like, oh yeah, we're gonna go to heaven with God, that's gonna be great. I just wanna like shift a little bit and we're, we're gonna look at one other piece of that, like one of, just one other way and I hope it's helpful. I know it's helpful for me and so I hope it's helpful for you guys to just shift the, the view that we have and just, just look at it from a slightly different way and hopefully that kind of lands. Um, and so part of how I wanna do that is one of the things that has been really helpful for me is there's this guy named Soren Kierkegaard or something like that. If you actually look up the way that his name is pronounced, it's like I, I couldn't, I can't even say it. Like I just, it doesn't match the words at all. Like it's, he's Danish. He's this Danish philosopher from the 1800s. And, um, and he, he's, he has some really good stuff. And I, I read this book a while back called The Sickness Unto Death by him. And we'll get into why it's called that in a second. But that, that phrase and some of the stuff that he's written has really stuck with me. So I'm going to use uh, that book and quotes from that book kind of throughout because um, I think it's helpful. And so, so the sickness unto death is what it's called. And he starts it off by talking about the story in John 11, which is Lazarus getting sick. So it's this guy named Lazarus getting sick. He actually dies, and then Jesus comes, and he, Jesus raises him from the dead. So he brings him back from the dead. And that's definitely the cliff notes of the story. And there's a lot in there. I mean, you, you could obviously do a whole thing on that. But um, the thing that I want to go into is, so one, it mentions multiple times, and it really, I feel like it really makes a point of saying that Jesus is, like, deeply moved by uh, just the the mourning and the friends and the family as they see G- as they see Lazarus die and they're going through that process. He's he's deeply moved and uh, Jesus wept, which is the shortest verse. So the Bible is in that story. So it's like Jesus was obviously he was moved by this. He had compassion. Um, yeah, it was it was something that meant something to him. He wasn't just like a bystander. And so you can kind of look at that and be like, okay, yeah, Jesus was compassionate. You know, great. Like everybody knows that. 
Um, but the second thing that I think is interesting, and we're not going to be able to unpack this a lot, but it is interesting, is so whenever he goes to the family, he's he is like he's very compassionate. He weeps. He it says he's deeply moved. But the first thing, actually, whenever somebody says, "Hey, Lazarus is sick," uh, the, he says, "This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God." So there's the the sickness unto death, right? Um, and we know that Jesus is going to heal. Lazarus, like, because he says that. I mean, the first thing he says is, like, this sickness is not a death. They say he's going to die, and he says, hey, don't worry about it. This sickness is not a death. But then he goes, and he is, like, compassionate, and he weeps with them. So there's something going on there. It's, it's kind of interesting. But, yeah, we're not going to be able to get a ton into that, but I will hopefully read into that at least a little bit later. Um, but why wasn't the sickness unto death, right? Because Lazarus died. He, he, I mean, he physically died, and he was dead for three days. So he, he, if any of us died, it would be the same thing, right? It's like, if somebody dies, you're not like, oh, they're going to come back, right? Like, this is a very final thing for them. This is a very weighty thing. It's a very sad thing, and it should be a sad thing. And I think that's part of why Jesus cries with them, right? Um, but the only reason, so in a physical sense, the only reason that it wasn't a sickness unto death, it was because Jesus was there. So Jesus came and he saved him, like he saved him from that death, right? And so Kierkegaard kind of pulls that out and like abstracts out a little bit, and he makes the argument that spiritually, and like if you're a Christian, and I think, I, I mean, I think a lot of secular thinkers too, it's like we don't, we don't live in a purely physical world, right? We live in a spiritual world that is kind of it's, it's bigger than the physical, right? So kind of, if you're talking spiritually, you're kind of talking in a more real sense. Um, that, so Kierkegaard says there's only one true sickness unto death, right? So Jesus says, like, this is not the sickness unto death. And Kierkegaard is, he's saying, well, okay, what is the sickness unto death then, right? And he, he makes the argument that it's sin. Because as a Christian, basically everything else can be recovered from, right? Like, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? And so if you're looking at death as even to die is gain, no matter what happens here, there's, and there's a lot of things that like can happen that are sad that we should grieve, or, grieve over, like people die or like, you know, financial ruin, like, uh, I mean, you know, all sorts of sad things. You get in a car wreck, like, you know, you, you break a wrist, whatever, like all that stuff is sad and, and, it's not to say that it's not, and I don't think Jesus, and I don't think God doesn't think it's sad. Like, I think he we he does weep over that, and that's kind of the beautiful thing about this story, is that we see Jesus really having true compassion for that, but then at the same time, it's not the biggest thing, right? So, like, it, it isn't the sickness unto death, because all of those things we can recover from as Christians. Like, that's our hope, is that we're not stuck in all of the things that happen here, we have a hope above that, right? And so, and Jesus talks about this in Matthew 10. Um, he says, whenever he's sending out the disciple or the apostles, he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So he's kind of drawing this, I really like this, if you can't tell, I really like the sickness unto death uh, phrasing. So he's kind of talking about there's like these sicknesses that aren't unto real death, which is a spiritual death, which is separation from God, is that judgment, right? Um, and then he's drawing that distinction. There is like a, a sickness unto death, 
which is separation from God. There is these other things that are not sickness unto death, which are the normal things that we wrestle with, you know, and that can be really serious things. That can be like physical death. That can be, you know, whatever. The list of things goes on and on, like people getting cancer, like really, really horrible things that God does weep over, um, but it's not the ultimate sickness unto death. So I've kind of belabored that. Hopefully that makes sense. We have those two things. Um, and I really like the, there's a Kierkegaard quote from that book that I really like, and he's, he's just talking about this kind of idea, and he says, such is the relation between the natural man and the Christian. It is like that between a child and an adult. What the child shrinks from in horror, the adult thinks nothing of. The child doesn't know what is horrifying. The adult knows, and he shrinks from it in horror. The child's Im imperfection is, first, not knowing what is horrifying, and then by the same token, to shrink from something else in horror. So it's kind of a lot. The way that he talks is, you know, it's kind of convoluted, but basically it's like a child or a kid can be scared of, like, a dog, right? And it might be, it might be even, like, a really friendly dog. And, and an adult can look at that, and a kid might look at that dog and be like, oh, shoot, like, <laughs> time to get out of here. But the adult can look at it and be like, oh, that seems like a friendly dog. Like, you know, let's go play with that dog, right? And so the child, like, is scared of things, but it's not necessarily things that needs to be scared of. Um, where the adult can kind of recognize that and be like, okay, yeah, that's fine. But the thing is, the child isn't scared of, like, financial ruin, right? Or like, oh, you know, the child isn't anxious about, like, getting a job or, you know, being lonely for the rest of their life, right? Whatever thing... So, like, the adult is able to look at the child and say, like, oh, you don't need to be scared of these things. But at the same time, like, what I've seen is that people actually get more scared the older they get. Like, that, it, that, I think that's not uncommon. We would like to think that we get less scared the older that we get and we have less fear. But I think it's actually the opposite. Because you understand more. You see bad things happen more. You see them happen to you. You see them happen to other people. And you kind of realize you get this idea that's like, oh, things don't always have to turn out well. Like, and a lot of times they don't. And that is, I mean, that is scary. Like, that's a scary thing. And so, so if you draw that from what Kierkegaard is saying is that basically we can look at these things of the world and we can say like, yeah, and you don't belittle the child, right? Like the adult doesn't go like, oh, that's stupid to be, you know, scared of that dog, whatever. You just, you enter into it and you kind of say like, hey, like this isn't scary, this is, this is fine. Like, you know, and they kind of enter into it with them. And so what they're saying, what he's saying about, like, Christians is that we can look at those things and say, like, yeah, those things are bad. Um, so the analogy isn't perfect there. But we can look at things that are bad and are caused by sin, but we can look at them and say, like, okay, well, I don't ultimately have to be scared about that. And then, but we do, with that, we have to look at what is actually scary. And there is, if you put, like, eternity and separation from God on the table, then you start talking about things that are scary. Like, I think that those should have a certain amount of weight to us, and those should be evocative to us. Like, those should be sobering to some degree, um, because they have a lot of consequence. And so, and so that's kind of the level, like, as a Christian, that's the level that we're operating on, right? Is like, there is, there are things that we don't necessarily have to be scared of, but there are things that we do, and... So the reason that I'm, like, belaboring this and going all into this, it's not just to say, like, okay, things are scary. Like, we should, have <laughs> we should have more fear in our life. That's not what I'm saying. More of the thing is, like, there is something that's really scary. Like, if you think about the judgment of God, that is really scary. But it's that Jesus is between us and that, right? So God, like I said before, and this is kind of like, I like grounding it in that trust thing because he gives us that way, like, through believing in him and through that trust, he gives us a way 
out of that, like in a, in a very like loving way. It's not just that he has to do that or anything. He cares about us and he wants us to choose him. And he does a lot of things, and we'll kind of get into that more. He does all sorts of things to get us to come back to him. Um, and so, and so that's, yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at here is that like there is a sickness unto death, but there is also an antidote to that sickness. There's like one single antidote, and that is Jesus' blood. And that's a huge thing. And so the idea there is like, we don't want to, I don't want to like raise the level of fear, but I do think if you think about it in that way and you do sort of raise that level, then your appreciation and the gratitude and just the, what Jesus did for us and what God has done for us, I think also gets raised along with that. Because if we see things as small and we see, like if we see sin as small and we're like, yeah, okay, like Jesus saved us from our sin, but that's a small thing, then like what he did for us was a really small thing, right? But if you see that as huge, I mean, if you see that as like, I mean, we can't be perfect, right? If you really try, like, it's just not going to happen. And so if we see that as big, all of a sudden we're going to see that as too big. Like, that can be, like, real despair. Because you'll get to the point where you realize, like, if I do think there is any sort of moral standard, I can't actually reach it, right? And that, and then once you see that as too big for you, and then you see what Jesus did for you, and you see what Jesus' blood has done for you and the way that it's changed uh, your relationship with God, that means something more. And so that's the point. That's, that's where I'm getting from this, or that's, that's where I want to go from this. Um, and so, yeah, that's a big concept, and I kind of want to, like, go into that more a little bit later, but uh, I'm going to go, hopefully, like I said, spend a lot of time on the first verse, and then now we're going to use those themes throughout the rest of this. So uh, second verse is, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surround his, surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Um, so, yeah, okay, so first, kind of going back to, like, the Old Testament kind of thing, like, is, it, is it they're talking about, I mean, they knew, you know, the mountains surrounding Jerusalem, like, they had that real imagery, like, they would see those mountains, right, so that's something that's real to them, and, um, and again, like, I had another thing in here about, um, just, I want to kind of, like, get there viscerally of, like, how much they were trusting God, and, um, I won't go into it a ton, but the story of Gideon where, like, there's this huge army that come, and then Gideon's going to go out with his army to go fight them, and God says, no, you have too many people. Like, if you win, it's too natural. It's too normal. So then I, I won't get the glory. You think you'll do it on your own. So he says, send, send away some people. He does that, and then God says, yeah, still too many people. Send away more people. So they only have three. Gideon only has 300 people left against this army of thousands, and he and what God tells him to do is like surround the, at night, surround the enemy army while they're camping. And then basically like blow these horns that they have and to like have these torches and just like wave the torches. And like that is not a, you know, you kind of look at that and be like, oh, that's tricky. Like something is interesting going on there, right? But it's like, that's not a good military strategy. Like the, like the, the most of the outcomes, like if you look at most of the possible outcomes from that is that like, you're just gonna die, like, and then, and that's something that's real, right? Like, imagine doing that in an actual battle, in an actual war, right? Like, you can kind of read this and be like, oh yeah, like that's great that God saved them, but they're literally they're like going to where the other people are. There's way, way, way more of the enemy, and they're sitting there, and then they literally all they're doing is like blowing horns, and they have these torches. So it's it's basically like, ah, oh, here we are, like, come get us, like. 
And so they, they need something supernatural to come. Otherwise, they're literally going to die. Like, and it's hard for us to understand that because we don't live in a time of war. But yeah, the way that they're trusting God is, I mean, it's kind of crazy. It's, it really is life and death stuff. And so I really, I want to like not belittle that at all, but like just point to how amazing that is and um, how much they were putting on the line in their trust, right? And so, so okay, so that's kind of the part of it, and yeah, I, we can't really spend too much time there, but I do think it's pretty amazing that they were doing that, and they were trusting God with their lives. Um, but so, okay, so he surrounds us today, right? Like, we can kind of look at that, and, and they, there is this, like, forevermore aspect of it from this time forth forevermore, and kind of this, this eternal view of, like, God is going to surround us. Christians are going to live in his... Um, in, you know, the new Jerusalem forever, right? Like, that's going to be a thing. But we kind of, we live in this uh, kind of in-between stage where, like, that hasn't happened yet, but we are post-Jesus. And so then, as back then, right, same thing as now, we can kind of ask, well, like, we saw Israelites, those were the chosen people, those were God's people, but, like, bad things happened to them, right? And we can say the same thing now, like, hey, bad things happen to us, even as a Christian, even whenever I'm trying to follow God. So it's like, well, okay, if, if this says, and JT touched on this a little bit um, last month, but it's like if God says he surrounds us and God is all-powerful, then, like, what's happening? And then you get into this question of, like, if God is good and all-powerful, then why do bad things happen? And I'm, like, not touching that today. Like, we're not going to do all that. It doesn't matter how much time I had. I couldn't give you, like, a satisfying answer probably for that. But I do want to kind of the same thing as, like, the cube. I just want to, like, look at a certain aspect of that. Um, and so we'll do that by going into the next verse, which is, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. And so this one, I'm going to go straight into this eternal view. Um, and when this comes to pass eternally, I, that's just going to be true, right? Like, there will be no wickedness. Like, God's going to be the one true king. He's going to be the only king, and there's not going to be anybody who's going to challenge that. And that's, so it's just going to be true that this, the scepter of wickedness, which is basically, I take that to mean just like wicked rulers, any sort of evil ruler or not good ruler, that's just not going to happen, right? Um, and it's, you know, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Like, that's not going to happen. God's going to protect us from that, right? Eternally, that's, that's what we're hoping. That is, like, our eternal hope, and, which is amazing, right? And, and that's kind of, like, kind of tying that eternity thing back in. Um, but before that, I want to kind of look back. So even in the Old Testament thing, like, if they're reading this, they knew, like, these people knew, and if you read through, uh, like, Kings and Chronicles and Judges and whatever, not whatever, I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you read through the Old Testament, you know that, like, there were a lot of evil rulers over Israel, right, and over Judah. And so even this, like, you can't really take it literally, because there were, there was a scepter of wickedness on the land allotted to the righteous, right, which is the Israelites. So even they, they wouldn't have taken this literally because they knew that that was, like, you, whether that's other nations coming in and enslaving them, taking them over, or whether that was uh, bad kings coming up in Judah, in Israel, um, which there, if you read those, there were a lot of them, you know, there were quite a bit. Um, but anyway, so we have this picture of then 
uh, we have this really helpful picture, I would say, of the Israelites back then, of them falling into sin, right, them being conquered. So God kind of letting something bad happen to them, right, and then him bringing them out of captivity. And if you go through Judges, is a really good book for that, to see that in the Old Testament, where it's just like person after person where the people fall away, God like lets them get taken over by somebody, and then he raises up a judge, and then the people are like, oh God, we want, like, we want to be with you again, because this is horrible, and then so he saves them, and then they do the exact same thing, like ad nauseum, basically over and over and over again, right? And so, and so this is what I was saying, like, I don't want to paint this picture of that's why bad things always happen, or like what we perceive as bad things always happens, is that like God is punishing us, or God is disciplining us. Sometimes that is the case, though, right? Like, it's not always the case, and I don't want to, I don't want anybody to walk away with the perception that that's what I'm saying, because I'm definitely not saying that. But it is something that we see in the Bible, and it's something that is biblical. Like in Hebrews, it talks about the discipline of the Lord, and you look through Proverbs, there's all sorts of things about discipline, right? And so anyway, so God uses these, these sicknesses that are not unto death, like these physical things that are hard, right? He uses those as mercies and as disciplines to help us see the sickness unto death, to help us like come back to him. And you see that through the Israelites. You see that over and over again. He uses these physical things to bring people back to him. Um, and so Kierkegaard, I ha he has this quote that I really liked about this, and he says, it is an infinite merit to be able to see, or sorry, it is an infinite merit to be able to despair, right? Which is, I mean, it's a weird sentence. Like, it's like, well, why, why would you say that? Like, why is that true? And, um, essentially despair here means feel the weight of sin, right? So he, he's basically saying it's an infinite merit to be able to feel the weight of the sin, to be able to see that we're living in a broken world, essentially. And uh, Ecclesiastes 7, it's, uh, you know, it talks about this in different ways in Ecclesiastes, but this was a good one, and in different parts of the Bible. But it says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Uh, so, you know, mirth of, like, being happy and whatever. Um... So why does it say that, right? And because I, I don't think, and then you definitely you read different parts of the Bible where it's like God wants to give us joy, right? Like he wants us to be happy. And he, he is a good father, and like any good father wants their children to be happy. So why is, he, why is Kierkegaard saying this? He was a smart guy. Why does the Bible say that at different points? And basically, um, ba basically it's because what I think one of the reasons could be is that we are, bro we are born into a broken world, right? It doesn't take that long to look around and you can see, like, there are bad things that happen. We're all unhappy with certain things. Um, and we see that the world is broken, right? And so and it's a gift to be able to see that and be able to feel that way. Because if you don't, like, we as Christians believe that everybody is born into sin. Everybody is born into brokenness, right? So if you never get to a point where you see like, oh, like, I have, it, using this language, I have this sickness unto death. Like, I'm going, my trajectory without any sort of outside influence is going towards something bad, right? And you might have this idea of God's judgment, separation from him. You might not, but if you're honest with yourself, it's, it's, it's going somewhere bad, right? It's not going somewhere good. Like, you can't just fix yourself. And so it, it is a mercy to be able to see those things. Um, yeah, and it, it's like, and, and again, those aren't, that not everything that happens that's hard 
is going to be like that. But I do think it's just, again, kind of trying to use that lens of like, if we view everything as, if we can just view everything in its place. Like, I was thinking about this, and I don't want to make the things that we go through here insignificant, or I don't want to make it seem like God doesn't care about those things, because I think that he does, which I've s said it like 70 times now, but I'm going to say it again, which is like, Jesus weeps with Lazarus's family and his friends, right? Like, he cares about those things. But at the same time, if we can just see, the goal here is like, for me and what I want to give to you guys is like to see reality as it actually is. Like that, that's what we want to do. I think as Christians, that's what we always want to do. Um, and so part of that is like, I was thinking about like a dentist, like, because you go to the dentist and you don't want to hear bad news, right? You want to just hear like, oh, your teeth are great. Like these are the best, these are the best teeth I've ever seen, you know? Uh, that's what you want to hear. But the problem is, if you went to the dentist and he said that every time, but your teeth were hurting, you'd be like, this, is, it's not working out for me. Like, I'm, this is what I want, but it's not really working out. And it's because it's not aligning with reality, right? So even though it's kind of hard, what you want to him to say is be like, hey, we, you know, I don't know, dentist stuff, but you have to, we have to do something. We have to pull out a tooth, whatever, root canal, you know, that's, that's like the only dentist word that I know is root canal. Um, we have to do something that's going to hurt, but in the long run, it's going to be better, right? And so that's kind of this idea of like why, why seeing our sin has merit and why seeing the hard things of this world have merit. And there's all sorts, have you read like um, the problem of pain? There's all sorts of C.S. Lewis stuff about that. Um, but yeah, I was kind of trying to avoid putting a C.S. Lewis quote in here because it's like, it's like, it's too easy. There's like too, too much stuff. But I, I mean, I'm always thinking about it. So, and I, yeah, if I had more time, I, I would have put stuff in there because it's good. He wrote a whole book about that. But um, yeah, and I mean, it's funny because so you can kind of talk about these things. It's like, okay, yeah, if, if like God is really big, then like, we're not going to fear the things here, and like we can grieve them, we can look at them as sad, which we should, because he does that too, but if he's bigger, then that's going to like, in, in a certain sense, I think our fears define like our reality, and I don't want to go too far into that, but there is a certain sense of like our ambitions and our fear, our fears kind of like put us into boxes of like what we think is, is uh, possible. So, like, if, if your biggest fear is something, like, relatively small, or, like, your highest ambition is something that's relatively small, then it's just, there's not going to be a lot of weight there, right? But, like, if you're, and, and you're going to view other things, the things that have more weight are going to be really scary, right? If you can't even comprehend those. But if you're looking at, like, separation from God, you're looking at eternity, you're looking at these really big ideas, you're looking at, like, God's love, and, like, what does it mean for me to be a child of God, right? Those are all really big things. And so anything else is going to be lower than that. It's not going to be insignificant. It's not tiny, but it's just going to be lower. And so, yeah, the idea is to be able to see those as they actually are. Um, and one example of this in my life, I was, like, pretty convicted, actually, in kind of, like, an embarrassing, funny way. Like, I was talking to my mom this week. We, were, we had dinner, and I was, like... I mean, yeah, if you, I've probably talked to, I've talked to a lot of people here about this. I was just complaining about how hard it is to buy a house right now in Austin because I've been thinking about that a lot. And it was really sad kind of because I realized that I'm like, it's a, I mean, it's an embarrassing thing, right? It's like a dumb thing, but 
I'm, I, I realize that I have like a lot of bitterness about that because it's like, oh, like if I had bought a house like two years ago, it'd been so much better. And like all my friends bought houses, whatever. And it's like this tiny thing and you can personalize that however you want, right? But I was just really convicted because like what I'm saying here is that my biggest fear is that, you know, and it's not necessarily this, there's a lot of things wrapped up in it, but you can simplify it to like, that I'm never going to be able to buy a house. Houses are too expensive, I'm never going to be able to buy that. And that's kind of where my head was, and it was like, I want a house, I'm never gonna be able to buy one. My life sucks, basically. That was like the train of thought that I had. And it's never going to get any better. Like, and, it, and that's embarrassing and it's sad, right? But that's what, that's what I was thinking. And that's like, as I was talking to her, that's kind of what I realized that I was kind of saying like, my life is bad and it's never gonna get any better because of this. And that's not true, obviously, for a lot of different reasons. But that is, like, that was my fear. And I was making that this bigger fear and I was treating it like a bigger fear, right? So that's, it's, that's a small example of that, but I thought it would maybe be helpful. Um, okay, so now we're going to, uh, let's see, time. I've been talking for a while. Um, I don't have too much left. Um, it's funny because it feels a lot shorter up here than it does whenever you're out there. <laughs> As I'm sure all of you are experiencing right now. Um, so the last couple of verses, verses four and five, are do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away from evil, will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So uh, looking through the kind of the old covenant lens here, like, and probably how they would have read this, they would have read this, I would think, with like looking at the covenant blessings and curses. So if you go read like Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, you get this, God is talking to his people, and he says, basically, if you follow me, these are the things, like, these are the blessings that you'll get. If you don't follow me, these are the curses that will come upon you. And he does that in different places of the Bible, um, those two specifically, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, if you want to go look at those. So that's kind of how they would have thought this, of like, okay, you follow God, good things happen. You don't follow God, bad things happen, right? Um, and so in a New Covenant sense, like, we have the end of the story, right? So we, we have revelation, we know what's going to happen, we know that God's going to, there is going to be a judgment, there's gonna be a righteous judgment, and it's gonna be a final judgment, right? And, and again, that's a big thing, I can kind of say that, but that is a really big thing, kind of what we've been talking about, right? So, and we look at the end of the story, something's going to happen. Yeah, I don't need to say all that again. There's going to be a judgment, right? And so we're talking about, we're again, we're talking about this sickness unto death, right? And it's basically like we're all infected with it. There's nobody who wasn't infected by sin. Like, you know, if you think you're not, then like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, I mean, I think we all know to some degree, you can call it something different. You don't have to call it sin. But if you say your life is perfect and everything that you do is perfect, I would disagree with you, I guess I'll just say that. Um, and so we're talking about this sickness unto death, we're all infected by it, and there's one single antidote, again, the blood of Jesus, right? And so that that's kind of the scale we're talking on here, where I guess I'm looking at these verses um, as that sort of separation that's going to happen at the end, right? And so Kierkegaard has a quote that I, I really, really like, um, and I kind of pared it down a little bit, so this is taken for a couple different paragraphs. 
But it's, this is the condition of despair. However much it, it eludes the despair, however much the despair has succeeded in altogether losing his self, eternity will nevertheless make it evident that his condition is that of despair, and it will nail him to his self, so that the torment will still be that he cannot be rid of his self. And this eternity must do, because having a self, being a self, is the greatest, the infinite concession that has been made to man but also eternity's claim on him. So again, that's kind of a lot, right? But like what he's saying is, and what I think is a really helpful idea is that it doesn't, what matters is reality, right? We can kind of say the way that we talk about belief and like religion a lot of time is like, oh, like I believe this. And we kind of talk it into existence. We kind of say like, because I believe this, this is what's true for me. And you believe that. So that's what's true for you. But as Christians and I would argue that everybody in the world should be doing this. Not everybody agrees with that, but um, I think we should all just be trying to figure out what's actually true. Because if there is something that is true, if there is any sort of objective truth, what I mean, what he says here is that like his condition will be nailed to himself, right? Like you, we're not going to be able to get away from any sort of objective truth, right? And and so basically one of the things that he's saying here is that like eternity has a claim on our souls every single one of us eternity has a claim on your soul and that's a huge idea like i don't know if you guys have ever thought about that because it's a scary thought it can be kind of a claustrophobic thought and i don't want to like freak anybody out but i do if it's reality then i think it's worth thinking about is that we don't have a way to get out of eternity like we don't have a way at least this is what we believe as Christians, is like, is that no person has the power to rid their soul of being eternal. We don't have that. And so that means that you're going, you, right, like your consciousness, whatever that's going to look like, we don't necessarily know what that's going to look like, but you're going to exist for forever, right? And that's kind of a scary thought. Like that, I would say that is a scary thought. I think that's a, a sobering thought, right? But as a Christian, we know that that can be kind of, it can be turned from a scary thought to a sobering thought, and then even to something that makes us really grateful and just really, yeah, more aware of what God's done for us. Because he has made us, he's taken that eternal soul, and he's saying it's going to be good. Like, you're going to live eternally, but it's going to be better than it is here. And that's a huge, huge thing, right? Like, it's just, yeah, it's, it's hard to comprehend that, and it's hard to understand what that means, but I do think the idea of your soul being eternal and your soul, and you not being able to get out of that, I think it's worth thinking about. Like, I would challenge anybody who's in here who like, hasn't done that, like, I would say it's worth thinking about. I would say at least, like, consider it. Like, if your soul is eternal, um, you know, think about what you want, that to look like like think about what you yeah just what that's going to mean and yeah christianity kind of has a, a way of dealing with that and there are other religions that they talk through that or and there's all sorts of different theories right but if if that's true i think it's worth considering and that's what like that's what jesus calls people to do is to come and um to to count the cost to like look at what he's saying and then um yeah, to take that, and he asked them to trust him, because it is trust, right? And the thing about trust is that you don't know. You do have to have faith. Like, you do have to have trust. So, anyways, I'm not going to talk about that anymore, but 
I do think it's something that's worth considering. And again, I think it's worth considering for the Christian, right? Because we can live, it's really easy to live in this life where we're not having this eternal view and we're kind of looking at it as like, okay, yeah, like these things happen here and whatever, but like, you know, God's like, I'm gonna live eternally with God, but yeah, but these things, you know, but it's like, ah, but I can't buy a house or like, I don't know, but it's like, I like can't find, you know, somebody that I wanna date or like I can't like, my kids aren't like doing as well in school as I want them to be doing or whatever. Like there's all sorts of things that are sad. Yeah, I've talked through that. There's all sorts of things that are sad and those things are sad, should be grieved. But like if we can view God as the biggest thing and we, that I think that does shape the way that we view the other things, even subconsciously to some degree. So I would, I would put it out there that I think having an eternal soul and like really thinking about that, not dismissing that, but really thinking about that and realizing like how your eternal soul and what you've done will be like nailed to what you've done here and you won't be able to escape that. I think that's for everybody. I think that's something worth considering. Um, okay, so that's, that's pretty much all I had. Um, I do wanna read, to finish up here, I do wanna read Hebrews. Uh, there's a, in Hebrews 12, I, I kind of wrote out a lot of this, and then I read these verses, and it blew me away, because it's, it's basically saying everything that this psalm, I think, is saying, and kind of everything that I took out. So I probably could have just read these, and then you guys wouldn't have had to listen to me, but <laughs> that's, <laughs> I, I can do, <laughs> I, I have the mic, you know, I can do whatever I want. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I think it's just really good. So it is kind of long, but bear with me here, so. It says, for you have not been, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, and so th this, is, this is kind of more of the part I wanted to focus on. You have come to Mount Zion, the like, the, you know, the heavenly, like the heavenly Jerusalem, right? And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, it says it right there. And to innumerable angels and festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So I just like that because it encapsulates a ton of ideas. It's got this, it, it uses that like Mount Zion language, but it's like the heavenly Jerusalem, right? And all of that is through Jesus, right? And that's the, that's basically what we've been talking about this whole time. And so later on, just a few verses in verses 28 and 29, that was 18 through 24, 28 and 29. So it says kind of because all that, so basically because of everything that we've talked about, because of if God is big, right? And all the other things are in their place, right? It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff there. There's the weight that's like God is a consuming fire, right? Like, but let us be grateful and offer to him acceptable worship, which is a lot of things, you know, it can look a lot of different ways. So uh, yeah, so, okay, I'm over, but I do want to say one more thing. I just thought this kind of ties it in pretty well. I remember one time I was talking to my uncle, and he's kind of a, he's a really good guy. I really respect him a lot. He's never married. He's an engineer. He basically works and then, like, does Bible studies, and that's, like, pretty much the only two things that he does, and he just... 
he's one of the most probably knowledgeable people about the Bible that I know. And I remember he, he gets really excited and like really fired up about it. And I remember him like talking to me about this stuff one time and just like all these, just all this stuff, like all these studies that he was doing and the way that he was looking at the Bible and all this stuff. And, and I was kind of like coming at it from more of like a, I don't know, like a Bible church type thing where I was like, okay, yeah, like that's cool, but like why do all this stuff? Like if it's relationship, then like you don't have to do all this stuff. Like people can come, like they can give their lives to God and they don't have to do all this Bible study stuff, right? Like they can just know God. So it's like, why, why are you doing this? Like what's the point of this? And it was funny, I, I mean, I've always remembered this and it stuck with me. Like he kind of, he looked at me and he like kind of smiled and he just said, that it's because I'm greedy. Like that's why I'm doing this. Like I see what God has promised for me in the future and in the heavenly Jerusalem. And he's like, I want that now. And so anything that I can do to make that happen now, that's what I want. And I'm going to do, I'm going to give like my life to do that. And I thought that was really, it, it just really struck me that like, let's be greedy for that. Like let's, God calls us to do that, to look at those things and to say those are good things and to want those and to strive after those things. Um, yeah, so that's, that's all I've got. Um, yeah, so just pray with me. <clears throat> God, I thank you so much that you are big, and I thank you that you are bigger than all of our fears that we have here. Um, I thank you that you provided an antidote to the real sickness unto death, to like this ultimate imperfection that we have that we can't ever get past, that we can't ever move past on our own, no matter how hard we try. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm really grateful for that. I'm really thankful for that. And I pray that that would, that you would just speak to us however you want to. I pray that as we leave here, that you would continue to be moving in our hearts just throughout the week. And um, as we talk to people and that we would not forget you, that we would remember who you are, that we would live in light of that and that that would change us and that you would be growing us to you and that we would be desiring that above all else that we would be desiring you and desiring uh what you have for us and what you've promised to anybody who accepts you and who trusts you in jesus name amen